Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Dr. Eeks, your host. How's everyone doing out there? Hopefully okay. Hopefully not too bad. I always like that response. Not too bad. Things could be worse. Maybe everyone is doing great. I don't know. Good for you if that's the case. Good for you. <clears throat> All right. Today's episode. So lately, I've been hearing more and more about family friends and friends of friends who have cognitive decline or have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And I'm like, my goodness, this is a lot. I don't know if we can call it an epidemic. Seems like we are calling a lot of things an epidemic lately, but it's a lot. And it's scary to think about, considering we are all getting older, and sure, getting older means there may be some natural decline, but developing full-blown Alzheimer's disease is frightening, especially considering we're an aging population and healthcare is super expensive here in the U.S. especially. You know, not being able to remember your loved ones, your memories, where you are and why you are there, it's scary. And there are no great medications for this, and so I am always interested in possible lifestyle interventions, or at least learning about the risks for cognitive decline related to our lifestyles to see if there's anything we can do, anything at all, as individuals, to lower our chances of losing cognitive function. If you scroll back through some of the Causes or Cures episodes, you'll see that I've had a few other researchers on to talk about some element of cognitive decline. So if you get a chance, listen to those. Do it now before it's too late. <laughs> Um, anyhow, today my guest is Dr. Jeffrey Iliff from the University of Washington Memory and Brain Wellness Center. He will describe more about his work in the episode, but the focus of this podcast is going to be his research on variations in sleep over time and cognitive decline. So we are really going to dive in into the relationship of sleep and sleep patterns over time and what that does to our brains. All right, so give me a few seconds to connect to him. And while I do that, please, if you can, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, review and rate it on iTunes, Spotify, and the likes. You have a couple seconds to do it now. <laughs> All right, guys, give me one moment while I connect to Dr. Iliff. All right, everyone, we are connecting to Dr. Jeffrey Iliff, and he's going to talk about cool research that he and his team did on cognitive decline and the link to sleep. But first, uh, thanks so much for being here on the podcast. And uh, this is a really interesting topic to me for so many reasons. But let's start by you sharing a little bit about what you do. Yeah, thanks, uh, Dr. Eeks, for having me on and giving me a chance to talk about our work. Uh, so I'm a neuroscientist. I, I trained in vascular physiology, but then I did my PhD in cellular, neurobi cellular neurobiology. Over the last 10 years or so, our group has been um, one of the groups defining one of the newer uh, one of the newer roles of sleep that's that's been identified in the last several years. So um, we know we know that a lot of things happen in your brain during sleep and in the rest of your body during sleep. But beginning around 2012, 2013, um, a new process began to be identified. And that's that's that during sleep, the brain shifts into a kind of 
uh, cleaning mode, clearing away waste that accumulate through the course of the waking day uh, during humans, you know, sleeping night, right? So one of the one of the purposes of sleep seems to be uh, kind of a, go, some kind of janitorial function where it's it's clearing away those wastes. So our lab focuses on um, how that process goes under normal physiological conditions, um, how it becomes impaired in the setting of different neurological or psychiatric conditions, and how you would try to target it in the treatment or the prevention of those conditions. So we do you know, a fair amount of work in animal models of disease, but we also do a, a, quite a bit of work in human populations also trying to understand the relationship between sleep and dementing disorders like Alzheimer's disease. And I went to your webpage and I saw the word glymphatics. So that's what you were just talking a little bit about, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, I never heard that before. So it's a made up word. Is it? <laughs> yes. Well, I we, liked we it. Made... It's a catchy word. So I was like, oh, glymphatics. That sounds kind of fun. It was uh, so when we were doing the initial studies, this was this is back in 2011 before the papers were published. So at the time, I was a postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Mike Niedergaard at the University of Rochester Medical Center up in upstate New York. And we would have these long meetings, she and I, you know, talking about our findings that, well, we see what happened. So what, hap what we observed was that um, uh, the fluid on the outside of the brain, which is the cerebral spinal fluid, um, which most people think of as kind of a cushion or it's something that the brain floats in, that it's a protective fluid. But one of the things that we observed was that fluid on the outside doesn't stay on the outside, but rather it moves into and through brain tissue along the outsides of the brain's blood vessels. So the brain repurposes its blood circulation, not just to supply nutrients and oxygen, but also to act as a scaffold for moving fluid in and out, right? And so we would have these long conversations describing this process, and we call it perivascular, meaning around blood vessels, so perivascular. Uh, perivascular fluid transport. And you, we would have these long conversations where we say, well, you know, perivascular fluid transport and waste clearance, which is a mouthful. And uh, Mike and said, we need a better word than that. And it was actually her husband, um, Steve Goldman, who at the time was the chairman of neurology there. He came up with the glymphatic term. And so it's a new old, uh, it's, it's, it's a made up word. We made, it was made up by Steve actually. Um, where the idea being, this is a process that was serving a lymphatic function. So in the rest of your body, what your lymphatic system does is it helps to clear away fluid and proteins between your body's cells, and it helps to participate in immune surveillance. And so the way that the, the body sort of listens to the immune environment in the rest of the body. Um, in the CNS, in the brain, um, we saw that th this network was serving a, an immune or a, a lymphatic function. And we also observed it was dependent on the brain's support cells, which are called glial cells. And so you had glial and lymphatic. And so the term glymphatic was born, um, which it, it's fun to have a new word, but it's also fun because yeah. that word gets a lot of people, that word kind of its meaning floats a little bit. And uh, people don't always mean the same thing when they say it. Lymphatics. I, I really like the word. And that is active at night or all the time. It the the cleaning, like when you use the word, I like how you use the janitor imagery. Is that yeah. that's happening when you're sleeping? So yeah, the the 
two different things have, let me go back. Uh, so there, there have been three main findings that have implicated uh, this process as being an, a process that is sleep active, meaning something that turns on during sleep. Um, so the first, this was carried out in mice. It was observed that um, when mice were asleep, this clearing out process was much more rapid when, than when the animals were awake, right? So that shows, and then if you sleep deprived the mouse, if you, if you kept the mouse awake, you would actually shut off this process. Um, there was a second study also carried out in rodents that showed that it was under circadian regulation. So uh, your sleep process and my sleep process is driven by two separate drives that are related to each other, but they're not the same. So one is your circadian drive, which is timed to the time of day and the, the light-dark cycle, right? Um, and then the other is what's called the homeostatic drive, which is the drive that makes you more and more fatigued the longer you're awake, Right? And usually those two drives work together, um, but there are times and settings in which they don't necessarily line up. Right, So jet lag is an example of when your, your homeostatic drive and your circadian drive get misaligned, or shift work is another example. But studies in rodents have shown that this is a process that uh, is regulated both by sleep and wake and by the circadian, by the circadian drive. And there was a paper just... Uh, just two or three years ago that came out that validated the sleep-wake finding in humans. So up until about 2020, this was something that was being extrapolated from rodent studies into the human brain. But um, these more recent data, mostly coming out of Norway, have suggested that, yes, indeed, this is something that's actually happening in the human brain during sleep as well. Hmm. So we're going to talk about your recent study that was published uh, in JAMA Network Open, right? Okay. Yep. Um, but can you first summarize the relationship? What was known before you started this summary? Obviously you talked a little bit about a specific system, uh, but yeah. just sleep duration and cognitive decline. What was known? Yeah. So th that study actually doesn't have, there's nothing specific within that study that connects to this process of waste clearance. It's a much more general study than that. Right. So there's right. long been appreciated a connection between um, aging and dementing disorders and sleep disruption. Right. So um, it's pretty well established that as you get older, you tend to sleep less and you tend to sleep less well and you tend to have less slow wave sleep, which is the deepest uh, uh, stage of sleep. And you also tend to have less REM sleep. Right. So a lot of things change as you get older. And people with dementia in particular have really horrific sleep cycles, right? Um, so disruption of the normal sleep-wake cycle is actually one of the things that frequently moves a person who's undergoing cognitive decline out of the home care environment into a professional care environment, right? Is the inability of a family caretaker to sort of manage, you know, someone who's up all night and sleeps all day, right? Um, so it was long assumed that that connection was because as the brain degenerated, the parts of the brain that regulate the sleep-wake cycle also degenerate, right? And that's why you get you know, messed up sleep as you as you undergo that 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 process of impairment. Over the last ten years now, um, a number of studies, um, especially studies carried out in older people who don't have cognitive impairment yet, um, have shown that people who have short sleep so less than six hours of, uh, of sleep a night, 
or people who have poor sleep quality. So if you ask a person, how's your sleep? And they say, it's terrible. Um, those people tend to have uh, some of the pathological hallmarks that are connected with conditions like Alzheimer's disease, right? Um, and that's in people who are cognitively normal. So um, what that suggests is very early in the disease process, there does seem to be a connection between people who sleep less and people who sleep poorly um, and the development of the pathology underlying those conditions, right? And so that leads has led people to think that um, maybe sleep disruption, particularly midlife sleep disruption, it might be one of the risk factors like hypertension or hyperlipidemia um, or you know diet and exercise. Those might be one of the things that's actually making the brain vulnerable to these dementing disorders, right? And there might be a causal, a causal relationship running the other way. On the causal relationship, and I've, I've read a lot about, you know, sleep issues and depression, and sometimes you get into this chicken versus the egg. Yep. yep. What are, What is your thoughts on that? It's, it, it's very complicated. Um, so when you look at the relationship between sleep disruption and poor sleep, or when you look at the relationship between sleep disruption and cognitive impairment later on, I wrapped up in there are, are a couple of important things. So one is the uh, the incidence of obstructive sleep apnea. So OSA is one of the prime causes of poor sleep, especially in the aging population. Um, and there's very clear data that suggests that there's a direct role of obstructive sleep apnea on the pathological processes that lead to these dementing disorders as well as indirect effects having to do with all the cardiovascular risk that comes with OSA, right? And so a piece of that connection between sleep, poor sleep and later cognitive impairment probably is attributable to uh, clinical sleep conditions like obstructive sleep apnea. There's also likely uh, uh, other comorbid conditions, including you know, metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease and depression, which probably carry their own risk and also carry with them some sleep disruption. So one of the things that we observe with sleep and cognitive impairment is that there's a U-shaped risk curve. So people who sleep short have higher risk. People who sleep sort of Goldilocks just right don't. And people who sleep long seem to have higher risk, at least in some studies. And the question being, well, if sleep is better, why isn't more sleep even better? And the answer is, well, people who are sleeping more than nine hours a night, um, either they, you know, it's possible they're just, they, they actually don't have good sleep, which is why they're sleeping so much, or they might have comorbid psychiatric conditions like major depression um, that bring with them sleep symptoms, but are also bringing with them these other risk factors. Makes sense. So you did a cross-sectional study a retrospective longitudinal analysis of the Seattle longitudinal study. And we're going to learn, we're going to talk about variability in sleep duration and that kind of thing. But can you just quickly summarize the, the study that you did? So, um, so we, we came to the university of Washington about five years ago. So we were at Oregon health sciences, Oregon health science university before that. And as we came into the city, 
um, and to the University of Washington, um, we were interested in asking questions about um, how poor sleep and how sleep disruption connect to cognitive impairment in human clinical populations. And so we started um, basically looking around for active studies in, around the University of Washington that would allow us to ask that question. Um, and it turns out that not a lot, so while there are many studies of aging, and there are many studies of aging and cognition in the US and around the world, there aren't so many that also have um, addressed the question of sleep in a way that would allow you to look at the relationship between changes in sleep and changes in cognition. And part of the reason for that is um, a lot of this, a lot of the really mature studies of aging and cognition, you know, these started 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago, right? Um, and so 20 years ago, the question of the role of sleep in cognitive impairment wasn't such an interesting question. Um, and it wasn't one that people necessarily thought of building into these studies. And so um, it so happened that the Seattle Longitudinal Study, which was initiated um, in the 1950s, um, which to me is is kind of it's kind of bananas <laughs> how long it's been going in the Seattle area. Um, uh, sometime in the 1990s, in this in this very long running studies, they started asking a bunch of questions around health behaviors, and it was questions like, you know, do you smoke? Do you, you know, what do you eat? Um, do you exercise? And 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 had a bunch of questions kind of drilling into people's behaviors. And one of the questions that they asked was, um, you know, on average in the last week or so, how much, uh, how much do you, uh, how much do you sleep on a, in a normal night? And they collected that data um, again and again and again and again in the same people over the course of a couple of decades. And then the, as those people aged, some of them underwent the process of cognitive impairment. And so you had this data where you could look at cognitive trajectories in people and um, the sleep that they had 20 years ago, or the sleep that they reported having, right? So a self-report. Um, and so we found here with uh, Dr. Sherry Willis and Werner Shai, who he was the initiator of the study back when he was a graduate student many, many, many years ago. And then Sherry uh, is his wife who helped to continue the study after he retired. Um, we found that this was a study that had good um, longitudinal sleep data and good longitudinal cognitive data. So we were able to look at how um, changes in sleep over time related to changes in cognition over time. And so it's sort of a unique opportunity to get at that question. So it was self-report for sleep and then to measure the cognitive decline, which you did multiple times over this amount of time, that was with the uh, standard cognitive tests that, yeah. that they use. Yeah, so the, the study was actually de originally designed, um, so it, uh, Dr. Shai and um, Willis, they're neuropsychologists um, by training. And so they were very interested in um, the way that cognition unfolds through life um, in a cohort-based uh, framework, as in, so the people who were uh, middle-aged in the 70s, and how cognition evolves for them is may actually be different than people who are middle-aged in the 90s 
and how cognition evolves for them. Because, you know, your developmental and your adult and your late adult um, contexts are so different. And so uh, they actually had this these very, very intense neuropsychological batteries that the participants underwent um, that included, you know, tests of many, many, many different uh facets of cognition and intelligence and things like that. Um, for our purposes, we needed a very simple dementia focused views, right? So we we uh, zeroed in on the uh, a couple of very commonly used uh, dementia rating scales. Uh, so the, the Mattis uh, clinical dementia rating scale and the mini mental state examination, which are broadly used in the Alzheimer's and the dementia field. So we use those as a, as a marker of when people sort of cross the line into cognitive impairment. But that was, you know, there's a huge amount of cognitive uh, data on these participants of which we used only a, a, a tiny sliver for this study. Okay, before we jump into what you found, you also categorize people based on the number of hours they slept. So- Yes. Okay, so if it was like less than seven hours, they were short sleepers, seven hours medium, uh, long hours, and and, I know that some of the results are tied into that. I was just curious though, what is the magic number that people are supposed to sleep as? <laughs> I, 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 it, yeah. I don't, I just was curious, like what is the curtain thinking on that? And why did you choose seven here as kind of like, you know? So, well, uh, those are, so those are different answers. Um, and they're all a little bit um, like the, the, how solid they are is surprise. People will be surprised how not solid they are, right? So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine says that adults should sleep between seven and nine hours a night. Um, period. That's that's what we have. Um, that's what everyone says. Uh, as you get to be old, getting seven to nine gets harder and harder for many people. Um, and many people say, "Well, I do just fine on five or six. And so the question is, does that person need less? Or are they just used to getting less and they seem fine, right? Um, so we actually don't, what, what many sleep physicians and sleep scientists think at this point is that while it seems like people need less as they get older, that probably isn't true. It's probably people need just as much. They just learn to adapt to getting less, right? So seven to nine is kind of the generic is the generic clinical number. I'm sure uh, it is likely that in 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 the in human biology there's variability and there's probably some people that need more. There's probably some people that need less, and that's very poorly explored. Um, in terms of this study, well, so the epidemiological data data so far suggests that below six hours a night seems to be some kind of threshold for risk. So people who sleep less than six hours a night are do seem to be at an increased risk. And this is from other studies. Um, and people who sleep more than nine or 10 hours a night seem to be at an increased risk. And so there does seem to be something to the, you know, six or seven to eight or nine hour window being probably uh, the most healthy. In our situation, we try to use uh, those, those margins. So we tried to say six or less nine or more, um, but partly because, um, so because of the construction of the data of the, of the cohort, um, the people who are in the, uh, the, the Seattle longitudinal study had to start healthy. And so it's, it's a study of healthy aging. And so there weren't enough people 
in the right age range sleeping less than six hours a night for us to actually do the statistical comparison. So when you're doing statistics, a lot of times it's easier to have it's easier to have a wider kind of spread of people. And so there weren't enough people with very long sleep and weren't enough people with very short sleep for us to do that. And so we found that, you know, people who had around seven, there was about a third of the people had that and about a third of the people had more and about a third of the people had less. So it's a very pragmatic statistical design thing that led us to say, well, people who are short are less than seven, people who are long are more than seven and people who are average are about about seven. Okay, I was just curious because I was wondering like, is that really, are we supposed to really get that amount of sleep? Is that really solid or like- it's, it's no, more the, solid than the five second rule. If you drop something on the floor, like if, yeah. <laughs> then, oh. <laughs> then you have but some I, vampires I, out there, like my mother being one, she doesn't sleep at all and seems perfectly fine, you know, knock on wood. But then you have people who need like nine hours and I'm always like, I don't know, but well, okay, yeah. fair enough. There's averages. I get that. Um, so we're going to talk about sleep variability too. And I was just curious, how did you measure that? The sleep <laughs> variability? I'm big it's, on measurements. Sorry. I... Yeah. So, um, and it, and it, part of it is when you do retrospective analysis. So this was a retrospective study, which means we did an analysis of data that had already been collected, right? And so uh, the inclusion of this of this. So we were hinging a lot of this off of a single set of questions in a in a bigger questionnaire about sleep, um, and so they asked. You know, they asked this question, um, how much do you sleep in a, uh, on average in the last week? And they asked it, you know, at, at an interval of a few years, uh, every, every few years, right? And so we had this single measurement taken between three and seven times over the course of a couple of decades. Um, and so what our, our initial assumption was that, or, and the thinking in the field is that, well, how much you sleep probably matters. So short sleep is probably bad. Long sleep is also probably bad. And the Goldilocks middle sleep is probably good. But probably people sleeping less and less over time is probably also bad. That's what that's what people think have thought. And that's actually, if you look into the existing literature, when people measure um, when people measure uh, sleep, twice over a period of a couple of years, they do find that people whose sleep duration declines tend to have worse or tend to have worse cognitive outcomes. But one of the things that we observed was that, um, it, so one of the things, if you have a, a multiple measures from the same person, right? The, the simplest thing you would do is you would either take the most recent measure or you would take the first measure or you take an average of all the other measures. Right, that's that's like the obvious thing to do, but you you could imagine you could imagine uh, three or four different people, all of whom had an average of seven hours of sleep a night, right? And one of those people had seven hours, you know, set, uh, over the course of fifteen years, had seven hours each time every three years for you know five measurements. They had a perfectly rock solid, stable uh, seven hours of sleep, and you can imagine another person who started at nine hours you know, five years in was sleeping seven hours and five years in was sleeping five hours. So it was on a steady decline, right? And you can imagine the opposite person who started at five, went to seven and went to nine, right? All of those people would have an average of seven hours. And then you could imagine a person who started at, at seven, went to nine, went to five, went back to seven, went to nine and went to five, whose sleep is all over the place. 
And so when we started plotting people's sleep trajectories over time, we observed that, yeah, there were some people who tended to get longer sleep over time. There were some people who tended to get less sleep over time. There were some people that tended to have stable sleep. And then there was a group of people whose sleep was just all over the place. And so our initial hypothesis was that people whose sleep declined would have worse cognition. That's what the field has shown up to this point. And we actually didn't see that. So when we evaluated that, we didn't see that association. And maybe that's because we didn't have enough decliners, or maybe it's because if you measure out over a long enough period of time, most you don't you don't get people who steadily decline, you get people who undergo a shift, right? And so we observed that the people whose who, who's, uh, the values of their self-reported sleep duration jumped around the most, they were the ones who were, had the highest risk of cognitive impairment. And that measure is simply just measuring the standard deviation, which you know, anyone who's ever taken, you know, statistics or calculus or ca even chemistry um, knows how to calculate it. Or you, you might have learned how to calculate a standard deviation. You probably don't know how to derive it anymore, but no. it's just a measure of how much variability there is over time. So it's a very simple measure. Okay. So you mentioned that maybe it was shifts, maybe you didn't follow the, or they didn't follow the population long enough, but are there any other ideas or theories out there as to why it was increased sleep variability. The people who had sleep all over the place and not a consistent decline in sleep could lead to more cognitive decline. I think, so to be honest, I think that the the simple answer is we don't have enough information, right? Um, so even if you just, if you think about um, uh, a decline, a, a decline, right? I could have a decline in sleep duration that occurs over the course of a week and is permanent, right? Um, I could have a decline that occurs over the course of 10 years. Um, and those are really different situations, right? I might uh, injure my back in such a way that all of a sudden I have chronic lower back pain for the rest of my life. And I go from sleeping nine hours a night to sleeping five hours a night because I have chronic pain. And it, and it could happen in a month. And that's really different than I'm perfectly healthy and I just slowly creep down from nine to eight and a half to eight to seven and a half, right? Those are very different health outcomes. And the trouble is that a decline, a person whose sleep duration is declining could be either of those or everything in between, right? Um, your spouse passes away, right? Or you become divorced. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden your sleeping situation of the last 30 years changes. Like that almost certainly has something to do that will have something to do with your uh, your uh, like how you sleep. Your family moves away because your children and grandchildren get a, get jobs on the East Coast when you live on the West Coast. Well, now you watch more television, right? Or what you know, whatever it is. So I think it, what it comes down to is there's a lot of different causes for why sleep changes generally. And they all kind of mash up together, and we just don't have enough information on um, how those changes occur over to different timescales and what their causes are to pull out where the, where the different risk is. Because some of them are probably connected to risk and some of them might not be. And you also found that the short sleep phenotype was significantly associated with impaired cognitive performance. So that's not talking about the rate or yeah. the variation in decline. That's just the people who said, I sleep less than seven hours. So that was for us, that was sort of a sanity check, right? So, um, <laughs> the, well, the, anytime you're evaluating 
especially self-reported data. Self-reported data, can, especially as people get older, can sometimes become unreliable. Um, and not uh, unreliable is maybe not the right word. Um, it can sometimes start to drift away from what you would measure objectively, right? Now, that doesn't mean that it could be that your perception of your sleep is actually more important than how much you actually slept, right? If you feel like you sleep well, maybe that's more important than actually sleeping longer or having more slow wave sleep. Um, but over time, the discrepancy between what you report and what could be measured by an instrument gets tends to get bigger. Um, and so one concern with self-report data like this is that um, it's in some way idiosyncratic or spurious, right? And so the fact that we were able to see the same risk profile that a lot of other studies have seen, right? So that's a very non-novel finding, told us that, well, something about the way that sleep is being assessed here, something about the way that cognitive function is being assessed seems to align with what other people are doing, with what, are, what other people are seeing. So that gave us confidence that the other, uh, the other outcomes weren't spurious. But you also found something that was, I think, different the older people slept longer? Yeah, that's, so we observed that when you, when you break, well, so we broke the groups out by age. Um, part of the thought process being um, uh, people who decline at different age, uh, in different age frames, sometimes do so for different reasons, right? And so we looked at all the different parameters in participants who were younger old versus older old, right? And so we tended to see that people in the older group um, seemed to have uh, longer sleep durations. Now that, that doesn't mean that they got long, that their sleep increased over time, but it rather means that people who were captured at that time uh, in the older ages tended to have longer sleep durations, right? Which it's, it's that sounds like a subtle distinction, but it ends up, it might like matter. Like a snapshot. Like where are they? Yep. You take a snapshot photo. Where so are they? why that is, um, it, it gets into some of the uh, some of the weaknesses in in studies like this, right? Um, which is, well, um, the people who undergo cognitive impairment tend to drop out of studies, right? And so there's a survivorship bias. Um, not that people were, are dying, but the, because they're they're sort of dropping out of the study because for whatever reason, and, you know, it's it's hard to go to a it's hard to go to a study and appointment with someone who has cognitive impairment or dementia. It's real hard, and so as you get older and older and older, if that population is cognitively normal, uh, while they are cognitively normal, they become less and less quote normal, right? They become more and more in some ways special or in some ways different from the wider population who's undergoing cognitive changes. And so we might, there, there might be a survivorship issue that, uh, issue in there. Um, you know, it could also just be um, as you cut a population smaller and smaller and smaller, you sometimes get effects that if you looked at a large enough population would go away. That's just sure. kind of statistically, it's an yeah. it's anomaly. It's hard to tell which, which of those it is. So what would you say public health implications based on this study and the work that you're doing uh how how important is do you think sleep is like we're we're a society that does not sleep it, it we're, <laughs> we're a, well but we're also we're a society that doesn't exercise and doesn't yeah. eat well, well and doesn't sleep <laughs> Yeah. And doesn't drink enough water, and yeah. like there's also, and we drive too fast, and yeah, we watch too much TV. Yeah. Like, it's raining. I'm in a negative mood, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, but 
I think there's public there there's there's several important implications, right? Um, so one is, um, and this this study is not unique in in identifying this. This is another study um, that suggests that sleep in the decades before cognitive issues start to arise is probably setting the table for those cognitive issues, right? Um, so. With the sleep that you're getting in your 40s and 50s and maybe early 60s might be dictating in some way the risk for cognitive changes or cognitive sustainability in your 60s and 70s and 80s, right? Um, so that's that's important. That's, that's something that we already know to be true of um, diet and exercise. We already know it to be true of certain medical conditions that are related to diet and exercise, like I mentioned earlier, hypertension and hyperlipidemia, right? Which are established risk factors for um, all cause dementia and Alzheimer's disease in particular, right? Um, so it sort of adds sleep into this diet, exercise, and sleep sort of, you know, trifecta thing that matters. Um, from a public health standpoint, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised by this. Right, Every, everyone's grand grandmother said you need to sleep better, and you should eat better, and you shouldn't, you know, you should you should control, you know, you should get out and get some fresh air and move your body around, and so, I I don't know who's going to be surprised by this finding. Um, so what it does is it tells you one it's one more thing telling you oh I should get better sleep. In some ways, it 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 does say. You know, what, as you think about sleep, most people think about sleep in, in a very short time scale, right? So if I if I stay up all night working on a work project tonight, um, I'm going to regret it for the next two or three days, right? But I can catch up. Um, and if I and if I do that on a regular basis, you know, things might be hard. And we all know maybe shift workers are less healthy. They certainly have a you know some some issues having to do with like cardiometabolic uh, disorders, right? Um, well, but it also, what this suggests is that sleep and and um, clinical sleep disorders um, and just sort of general sleep hygiene might have implications that go out, not just over the next week or two, but go out years and decades. So that matters. But I think the bigger, the more interesting thing, is, um, and this, this is where things get more speculative and more exciting, and this is where it connects back up to our biological work on this brain clearance process, right? So one question is, why does sleep connect to cognitive impairment? Like the, this study that we're talking about showed that there was an association, but what's the biological basis for that association, right? Is it that there's some sort of network maintenance that has to happen during sleep and so the network doesn't perform as well? Certainly. Are there blood flow changes uh, that occur during sleep that if you don't get, uh, have cognitive outcomes? Certainly. Do people who have poor sleep or especially sleep disorders have worse cardiovascular health and therefore less brain perfusion and blood flow? Certainly. But if one of the functions of sleep is actually the clearing away of things like amyloid beta and tau and alpha-synuclein, which are the things that aggregate in the setting of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia and uh, frontal temporal dementia, right? Well, then poor sleep might actually be driving the pro be one of the things at least driving that process. 
And when you think about the, you know, the new line of Alzheimer's therapeutic drugs that the FDA has begun approving, right, these anti-amyloid uh, immunotherapies, it's very exciting that there is a drug that seems to affect the disease. But I think many people in the field and clinically are wary that this is a panacea for Alzheimer's disease, because at the end of the day, clearing away the plaques that are sort of underneath the disease is analogous, if you think about the heart, if you think about heart disease, is analogous to angioplasty, right? So if, if in heart disease, the thing that you want to avoid is a heart attack, well, angioplasty can repair a blood vessel that can lead to a heart attack. Um, and it's good that angioplasty is safer and more and, and better than it was, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And it's good that if you have a heart attack, you can go to the cath lab and technology is advanced. But all of the leverage in, in heart disease, the reason why heart disease has gone down, and it's because people with hypertension are identified and hypertension is treated aggressively. And it's, it's because people with hyperlipidemia are identified and are given Lipitor, um, and that's managed so that people don't have to prevent, you actually prevent the heart disease that causes the heart attack, right? So it's primary prevention. And so in the setting of Alzheimer's disease, is it good that we have drugs that can clear plaques out of the brain? Yes. But at, up to this point, their clinical benefit seems mild. Um, their risk profile seems substantial. Um, and their cost seems astronomical, right? Uh, well, what if by targeting sleep in your 50s, we can actually prevent the development of the pathology that eventually leads to Alzheimer's disease, right? Um, what if by targeting this biology, you can actually sort of move the move the target leftward on the curve so that um, instead of making angioplasty better and better and better, you're actually preventing people from getting heart disease in the first place, or at, at the very least deferring its onset until later on, right? And so I think that that's where it starts to get excited is exciting as sleep becomes a therapeutic target um, earlier in life to change how things go later in life. I like that. I appreciate that. I, 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 I always think there's a place for drugs, but there's certainly not a cure-all for everything. And you, you, there's countless examples out there, you know, where they have their role, but um, there's still lifestyle factors and lots of other things we can work on. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time today. This was super interesting. And uh, do you have any other research coming out or papers coming out or um, all the time? Yeah. <laughs> we have uh, we have a lot coming out. So we have um, a series of studies looking at this process, these processes in um, the setting of blast TBI. Um, so among veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, who you know uh, were you know were in IED explosions and things like that, and that's there was a lot there's a huge amount of that kind of exposure um, among you know, people who were in those theaters over those years. And those people are starting to get older. And so many of us have suspected that uh, some of these same processes might be impaired in that setting. And that's over time that might confer some sort of risk to processes related to neurodegenerative conditions. And so we have actually uh, a pair of studies coming out uh, at some point, point in the near future, that are going to relate, that will relate to that, that will be, I think, important studies. Um, 
And then we also have, uh, we are actively developing uh, a big part of what our, our group does is developing um, non-invasive approaches to measuring this brain clearance, this, this cleaning um, in the human brain, right? So part of, you know, in the same way, going back to the heart disease analogy, if I know that hypertension is risk factor for heart disease and contributes eventually to risk of, of heart attacks, I need to have a blood pressure cuff that allows me to identify people at risk, right? You need to have a blood test to measure your triglycerides. And so we need to develop uh, either devices or imaging approaches or maybe biomarkers that allow us to detect impairment of this clearance process so that we can identify a person at risk so that then we can intervene to try to improve that process and thus hopefully prevent the development of these conditions. So we have um, some studies coming out probably in the next six months um, doing that either with devices or with uh, MRI imaging approaches. Awesome. I'm sure my listeners are going to, uh, they're always so interested in sleep stuff and uh, things that they can do in their everyday life to try to help them. So, you know, well, thanks, yeah. thanks for taking the time for the conversation. I enjoyed it, Dr. Eeks. Absolutely. Thanks again. Catch you later. Bye. All right, folks, thanks for joining in for the episode. I hope you all learned something new about sleep and the relationship between sleep and cognitive decline. I hope you get a good night's sleep. Maybe you need to work on improving your sleep. Maybe you need more sleep, less sleep. I don't know. But hopefully something in that podcast was helpful to making your relationship with sleep better. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Anyhow, I hope you stick around and subscribe. There are a lot of great experts I have lined up and topics that I think you'll find interesting. I think they're timely. Uh, I hope you tune into those. So subscribe, share, all that jazz. And now, time for the closing quote. This one is from Jimmy Dean. We can't control the direction of the wind, but we can adjust our sails. True that, true that. All right, everyone. See you next time and bye for now.